Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Allison Kosick, and here is what you need to know. A $30 billion ban. Huawei's CEO reveals the cost of its fight with the U.S. A 10-day warning. Iran says it will exceed the stockpile limits of low-grade uranium enrichment. And not made in China? How companies are avoiding the tariffs by shifting production lines. It's Monday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move and a happy Monday to you. Let's begin with a check of the markets. Here on Wall Street, it looks like futures are pointing to a flat to modestly higher start to the trading week with the Nasdaq set for the biggest gains. All the major averages finished last week in positive territory for the second straight week. The S&P 500 is about 2% away from its all-time high, and it's up almost 5% so far just this month. This week's big event for the market takes place on Wednesday. That's when the Federal Reserve releases its latest policy statement and Fed Chair Jerome Powell will hold a news conference. Many believe the Fed will begin cutting interest rates as soon as this summer to help ensure against a trade-related downturn. The Fed could begin laying the groundwork for those cuts this week. Meantime, U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said once again this weekend that the U.S. could slap new tariffs on China if trade talks go nowhere. President Trump and China's President Xi could meet to discuss trade at the G20 summit that's happening later this week. All right, let's get straight to the drivers. Iran says it is accelerating low-grade uranium enrichment and will pass the limit it's allowed to stockpile in 10 days. It's the latest step. Tehran is taking away from the international nuclear deal it signed almost four years ago after the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from it in May of last year. Let's get to Fred Plykin. He's got the latest from Tehran. So glad you're there for us because trying to get an idea here of where Iran is going with this. What is Iran hoping to accomplish with this move? Well, I think essentially what the Iranians are trying to do or why they're doing this, uh, Allison, is because they feel that the European nations uh, are stalling. The Iranians are saying, look, uh, they signed the nuclear agreement. All the parties that are still part of the nuclear agreement, which is, of course, everybody who signed it except the United States, um, all of them have commitments under the nuclear agreement. And they feel that they have been sticking to their commitments, which also the International Atomic Energy Agency has said that Iran is complying by that agreement. But they feel they're not getting back from the Europeans what they are owed under this agreement. Keep in mind that when the U.S decide to leave the nuclear agreement, the Europeans told the Iranians they would try to make up for any losses that the Iranians would have because they would obviously lose a lot of American business. Now, the Iranians are saying, look, so far the Europeans have been all talk and very little action because uh, so far the Iranians still basically can't export any oil because of U.S. sanctions. And of course, businesses aren't really coming here from Europe or from anywhere else because they fear American sanctions. Let's listen into a little bit of what uh, the spokesman for Iran's Atomic Energy Agency had to say as he was announcing the fact that the Iranians are scaling back their commitments and what he wants to see the Europeans do. Let's listen in. And I have said that we are counting down. In 10 days' time, we will overpass, of course, the uh, limitation of keeping 300 kilograms of stockpiles of LEU and uranium inside the country and of course there would be other measures later on 
if the Europeans will not do their parts. There you go. If the Europeans will not move. Of course, one thing that the Europeans, uh, Allison, have been saying is they say they want to put together an investment vehicle to guy, try and get around uh, American sanctions. So far, that really hasn't taken off. The Europeans say that there is headway being made, that it's still in the works, but so far uh, it, it, it simply isn't in practice yet. Now, so far what we've seen from the Europeans, there are some reactions. The Brits have been very critical of the Iranian statement. We're waiting to hear more from the European Union and from other European countries as well, Allison. Okay, we will, we will look to you for their comment. Thanks so much, Fred Plaikin, live for us in Tehran. Huawei names the cost. The company's founder says the U.S. ban on its products will slash sales by, get this, $30 billion over the next two years and has already led to a 40% drop in overseas handset sales. Cherise Pham joins us live from Shenzhen, China. You know, it's only been four weeks that Huawei has been blacklisted. These are some big estimated losses. These are huge losses, Allison. This is really the starkest terms yet that Huawei has laid out for how this U.S.-led pressure campaign is hurting its bottom line. Uh, a $30 billion drop in sales over two years, 40% drop in overseas smartphone sales. And let's not forget, a lot of American viewers out there, they may not be very familiar with Huawei because Huawei has been locked out of the U.S. market for the better part of a decade. But our European viewers, you know Huawei very well because that's where Huawei sales have been growing. Almost half of Huawei smartphone sales uh, came from overseas markets last year. Those are markets outside of China. And look, Huawei is the world's number one telecommunications maker, telecommunications equipment maker, and the number two smartphone brand. And Ren Zhengfei said today that he always knew that the company would become a target when it became big, but he said he had no idea that this U.S.-led campaign was coming. Have a listen to what he had to say. What we didn't foresee was that the U.S. strategic determination to attack us would be so great and could be so unwavering. We also didn't foresee that the U.S. would strategically attack us on so many fronts. However, I don't think this will stop us from moving forward. He says it doesn't, he doesn't think it will stop the company from moving forward. He's still predicting that the company will survive this, uh, ge these geopolitical headwinds. Uh, but of course, this is a massive setback for the company. Washington put Huawei on this trade blacklist about a month ago. It means that U.S. companies can't sell things like software and chips to Huawei. And without access to popular apps like Google Maps and Instagram, Huawei smartphones become a lot less attractive to international consumers. Ren saying the company will survive, but analysts saying if this ban is in it for the long haul, Huawei's global business will really be threatened, Allison. Yeah, I mean, the, the company will survive, he says, but how does it go ahead and, and, and handle these losses as they go forward? Because Huawei will remain on this blacklist. Huawei has said that it's been diversifying its uh, supply chain for a while and that they've been stockpiling parts. So they do have some contingency plans in place. They've been trying to build their own operating system for the last little while. So that's something that could replace the Android operating system. And, you know, Ren said today, and the numbers bear this out, is that while smartphone sales overseas are on the decline and they've really had this drop since this entity ban came into place, 
Smartphone sales for Huawei are growing in China, and China is one of the biggest markets out there. So they can survive domestically. It will remain to be seen what their global business will look at if this, uh, if this U.S. ban stays in place for much longer. All right, CNN's Sharice Pham, thanks so much for that. All eyes are on Boeing at the Paris Air Show, the U.S. jet maker and its European rival, Airbus. They typically use this industry event to announce new orders for hundreds of aircraft. But this year, things are going to be a little different because Boeing hasn't announced the commercial order in over two months. Melissa Bell is live for us at the air show in Paris. So I've been reading and I know that Boeing already kicked off the event with another apology, apology with Dennis Mullenberg apologizing, reiterating that when the MAX gets back to service, it will be one of the safest airplanes to ever fly. But I can only imagine how awkward this is for Boeing. This was always, Alison, going to be an extremely important test. We're here on the tarmac at Le Bourget, just outside of Paris. This is the air show where Airbus, and you can see there are some of them lined up here along the tarmac, and Boeing go head-to-head, -head, and it's all about the orders. It's all about the numbers of contracts they're going to get. You have the big aircraft makers, you have the big airline companies, you have the military uh, also represented. But it is that battle between the two giants of uh, the aviation industry. This year, of course, made slightly very different by what Boeing has gone through over the course of the last year with its 737 MAX. And it was all this morning when we heard from Boeing about contrition. Bottom line, we will employ every resource across Boeing in a comprehensive effort to make sure we get this airplane safely returned to service. And when it does, the MAX will be one of the safest airplanes ever to fly. In the meantime, of course, Alison, and perhaps no surprise, the Airbus are using this event uh, to really put the knife in, announcing uh, the contract worth 100 planes and $11 billion this morning, of which 27 aircraft being made by Airbus that were launched here this morning, the A321 XLR. This is a new version of their uh, A321 that will go further than the, uh, the previous one and that directly competes with Boeing's plan uh, for a new uh, mid-market aircraft. It was to have launched by 2025. That is now in doubt. So bold has Airbus's move been into this uh, mid-market section with this new Airbus launch. And again, 100 uh, planes uh, sold uh, today. That was their announcement today. They really wasted no time in using Boeing's woes to make sure that they can get ahead in this crucial and extremely competitive market. All right, Melissa Bell live for us in Paris with many planes flying overhead. These are the stories making headlines around the world. China's President Xi Jinping will pay a visit to North Korea at the invitation of Kim Jong-un. That's according to the Chinese news outlet Xinhua. It says the visit will take place this Thursday and Friday. Crowds are once again filling the streets of Hong Kong, demanding the chief executive's resignation. This was the scene on Sunday when organizers say around two million people took to the streets. Chief Executive Kerry Lam has apologized for introducing the controversial extradition bill, but demonstrators want her to step down. Ivan Watson joins me live from Hong Kong now. You know, you think about the, the small steps toward, you know, these little steps toward a win for these protesters, for, for those who are against this extradition bill. Discussion of the bill, action of the bill has been suspended, but still falling short of totally scrapping the bill, right? 
Yeah, it's a temporary suspension, and so the demonstrators that are still out in much smaller numbers, I might add, tonight uh, around me here uh, by the office of the chief executive of Hong Kong, uh, they want that bill completely scrapped, but they've also added additional demands. They want the resignation of Beijing's hand-picked leader here in Hong Kong, this, this uh, uh, basically lifelong bureaucrat, Barry, Carrie Lam, uh, and they want uh, people who were detained and arrested throughout this very dramatic week, eight days of street protests to be released. And they want accountability from what they say are allegations of police brutality. Uh, and so what we're hearing is taking place now is you have some pro-democracy uh, legislators, lawmakers who are gathering here trying to figure out ways to try to, to push their demands forward with the city's authorities. I do have to stress, though, that, that the concessions that the leadership here has made in the last couple of days are, are really quite striking. Uh, that apology that came in increments uh, from Kerry Lam, uh, ultimately coming in written form uh, in response to the tremendous sea of protesters dressed in black that coursed through the streets of the city on Sunday. Uh, it is a, a fascinating dynamic that is playing out here, uh, the most dramatic week that Hong Kong has seen in years. Allison? Yeah, I mean, many, many would see it as a, a shocker that e the bill was even suspended and that, as you said, that apology came. What do you think is the likelihood that Carrie Lam could resign? You know, judging by what happened five years ago when protesters occupied this park and streets around it for more than two months before they were ultimately pushed out. Uh, at that time, the chief executive, and they were calling for his resignation then, he stayed in power for some time afterwards and still enjoyed the support of the Chinese central government. So if, if we're going to see a repeat uh, of the same approach, we could see the same thing right now. And one of the challenges that the opposition faces right now is, is how do you keep that energy? How, how do you keep people mobilized? Uh, it is pretty startling, pretty unprecedented, the arguably millions that we saw out in the streets over the course of the last eight days. But it's very hard to catch that lightning in a bottle moving forward. Ivan Watson, live for us in Hong Kong. Thanks so much for that great reporting. President Trump is accusing the New York Times of, quote, virtual treason after the paper reported that the U.S. is stepping up cyber attacks on Russia. According to the paper, the U.S. is targeting the Russian power grid and has placed potentially crippling malware inside the Russian system. Stay with us on First Move. Still to come, playing the Trump card, India raises tariffs on dozens of U.S. imports. And opening up about privacy, Google's CEO says big tech must take responsibility for how it uses your data. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. Let's take another look at Wall Street futures. And it's looking like a mostly flat start for all of the major averages. Trading could be subdued early this week until the Fed releases its much-anticipated policy statement that's happening on, on Wednesday. The statement should give investors new clues into whether the Fed expects to make a so-called uh, insurance rate cut to help keep the economic expansion going. 
All right, for more on the markets, Paul Christopher joins me now. He is the head of global market strategy at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. I couldn't have picked couldn't have picked a better week for you to be here. Let's start off by talking about the Fed, because if you look at the economy, it, many would see that it's less weak than previously thought, but yet you have investors screaming for a rate cut, and you have uh, the predictions of one, maybe even two rate cuts this year. Are rate cuts justified, and if so, why? We think so eventually, but probably not this month, uh, and maybe not even until later in the year. Actually, the Fed, we think, is going to be watching the data very closely. You had a pretty good retail sales report last week, pretty decent industrial production number. We think the Fed will not be in a hurry, but will be patient. How do you think the year, the rest of the year, is going to shake out? I know that uh, Wells Fargo put out its mid-year outlook report. What do you see in, in going forward? Yeah, our view is that the economy is not at imminent risk for recession. The labor market is still pretty solid. Consumer household spending looks pretty good to us. The real weakness comes on the corporate side in terms of corporate spending on plant and equipment. That has been very lackluster and it has been even more so around the world. And that's probably going to continue as long as we have these trade disputes going on. So you've got the economy, the global economy, and the U.S. sort of firing on just that one piston household spending right now. But that one challenge ahead, that could be a biggie, especially for the market. Well, yes, you're not going to work out all of the details of the trade uh, dispute with China overnight or even very quickly. But we do think there will be a preliminary deal. And once the markets start to get a sense for how negotiations may go, and frankly needing to see that the two sides are even willing to make some kind of compromise, then there could be some let up in, in some of this pessimism. How much is the inverted yield curve yield curve a concern for you? How important it is to get that thing normalized? Well, it's a very important indicator. It, it has been associated with the, com the coming of recessions in the past, not right away, of course, several quarters it takes after the inversion. It is one indicator, but what we think is, is going on right now is perhaps the bond market has reacted a little bit strongly to the trade dispute and the, and the slowing in the global economy, and we think that rates probably will pick back up a little bit in the coming months. Okay, so many would say, look, the bull market at this point is, is very long in the tooth. Um, what are ways to invest in this kind of environment where uh, many see the bull continue to run? Well, you want to make sure that you have your income. A lot of our clients need to have income, and with yields this low, around 2% on the 10-year, you really need to make sure that income is in place. We still like dividend-paying stocks. REITs will also give you some, a real estate investment trust will also give you some of that income. And once you've got your income taken care of, the next thing is to protect that capital a little bit. And one of the best ways to do that is a really basic investing technique called rebalancing. Our target right now for the S&P year end is 2850. The market's a little bit above that. You should be take, looking to take some profits, put some cash aside. And when we get the next little bit of bad news or worries, you look to put that money back to work. That's how you're going to make money in stocks. And you talk about bad news and worries. Look, trade is really one of the biggest headwinds, and it's the most unpredictable headwind. You know, we've got that next tranche of tariffs possibly going to affect the $300 billion. How do you trade knowing that that could be down the pike? Well, you have to make sure that you're well diversified in the first place. Make sure that you have some cash on the sidelines and be disciplined about it. We are going to get some disappointing news at some point or another, but we do believe there will be a deal. So if you keep that out there on the horizon, then when you do get those disappointing days, those will be days to, to look to put some money back to work. What, emer what about emerging markets? Uh, very quickly before we go. We do like emerging markets here. We think they've probably been oversold in all of the trade dispute stuff. We think that China will more or less 
well, let's put it this way, more than anything, keep its economy stable going forward. And that's going to be a good sign for emerging markets. Looks attractive to us on a valuation basis. Okay, Paul Christopher of the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. So good talking with you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Okay, turning now to another battleground for the Trump administration. As we talked about trade, India ramping up tariffs on U.S. imports. In just the past 24 hours, it's hit 28 American products with increased duties. Relations between the two countries have soured in recent weeks. John Defterios is live for us with more. All right, so I want to talk about the timing of this. Why now? Because this seems a much delayed response by India for the American tariffs on Indian steel and aluminum. Well, I don't want to read too much into it, Allison, but I think after the resounding victory by Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, that took place in India, he's feeling a little bit more emboldened at this stage. This is a, a huge market of 1.3 billion consumers. It is not China. Uh, but the application of the tariffs is more symbolic than a real bite here. It covers 28 products. You think, wow, uh, mostly farm products, but it only covers about a quarter of a billion dollars. I think it is a, an effort by the Modi administration to send a signal uh, to Washington here. But if you go back to the meeting in June of 2017 be, between Prime Minister Modi and President Trump, uh, they sounded like the reformers, those who were pro-business and they'll make things happen between the two countries, particularly as President Trump started to challenge China. But this bromance never really materialized here. And in fact, I was in India over the last two and a half weeks and the weekend that Modi won the election, the U.S. decided to lift this uh, general preference for trade, which covered about $6 billion worth of exports from India into the United States. Now, India is a promising market, a big, fast-growing market, but the trade between India and the United States is about $140 billion, $142 billion bilateral trade. It is about a sixth of what we see with China. But it was the future of Indian trade with the United States that everybody was betting on and why U.S. companies are not happy about China, but are also not happy about the trade tensions between uh, the U.S. and India right now. John, you know, some may consider this a real high-risk strategy for India, picking a fight with its biggest export market, the U.S., especially when growth is slumping. Uh, you make a very good point, because the last quarter in India, while well, it sounds good on a global level, uh, of 5.8% is far from the days of, uh, heady days of 8, 9%, more recently getting used to 7%. And then the government came out and announced that uh, growth is perhaps about 2.5% above those high margins before because of a recalculation. Uh, I know, again, on the ground, having been in India, Prime Minister Modi is concerned about the jobless rate. It hit a 45-year high. I said that correctly. 45-year high. Again, it's not very high, 6.1%, but criticism of the government not generating enough jobs. Now, politically, making India is a huge campaign on the ground in India. They want to make their own electric tuk-tuks and two-wheelers right now and the infrastructure to be built by Indian companies, perhaps with U.S. and European uh, expertise. So this is a domestic play by Prime Minister Modi looking tough on Washington right now. And we know that the Trump administration has complained about the tariffs on motorcycles and medical devices and even whiskey. So the latest move by the Modi administration, even though it's symbolic in terms of the overall dollar amount, does send a very strong uh, message to Washington right now. Don't mess with China, but also don't mess with India at the same time. All right, John Devterios, thanks so much for your reporting. You bet. And we've got the opening bell coming up right after this break. We'll see you on the other side.
And there you have it. That's the opening bell on this Monday morning right here at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, U.S. stocks look like they're mostly flat in, in the opening trading moments. Uh, looks like tech stocks are set to make some modest gains. Meantime, oil is trading lower. Both Brent and U.S. crude are down more than half a percent. Uh, we're watching oil as it continues to stabilize after Thursday's uh, spike of about 4 percent. That follows the twin attacks on tankers in the Gulf of Amman. All right, let's take a look at some of the global stock movers that we're seeing on this Monday. We begin with drug maker Array Biopharma. Shares are rallying after a buyout offer from Pfizer. Pfizer is buying the company for more than $10.5 billion. Array sells drugs to treat skin cancer, and it has other cancer treatments in the pipeline. Shares of Sotheby's are, Sotheby's are rallying. It's uh, being taken private by a company called Bidfair in a deal worth $3.7 billion. That's a 60% premium from Sotheby's share price on Friday. Bidfair is owned by Patrick Drahi, a media and telecom entrepreneur. And we're keeping an eye on shares of Chewy. They are lower in early trading. The internet arm of retailer PetSmart went public on uh, the New York Stock Exchange on Friday. Shares popped almost 80%, but it looks like they are giving back some of those gains today. Shares of Alibaba are higher. The company's board has approved a one to eight stock split and has, a, has set a shareholder vote uh, to happen on July 15th. Alibaba says it wants to boost available shares to give it flexibility for future market activities. It's seen as a sign that Alibaba is going ahead with a public listing in Hong Kong later this year. Corporate America is about to get its say on the prospect of more tariffs against China. Hundreds of company executives and trade groups are set to testify in Washington this week. Claire Sebastian has the latest on that. Good morning, Claire. Hi, Alison. Yeah, this is the first day of seven straight days of hearings that the U.S. Trade Representative are holding. That's about this $300 billion uh, in extra tariffs on Chinese goods that the president has proposed. I want to bring up uh, just some of the companies that are set to testify today uh, on day one, just so you get a sense of the types of industries represented here. Best Buy and Roku, you see electronics is a big one. Kenneth Cole, fashion and apparel, another big import from China that could set to be that could be set to get hit. Uh, New Balance is an interesting company. They make shoes. They have supported uh, the trade war, but now they find that the parts they use in their manufacturing in the U.S. could get hit. And, and interestingly, also Element Electronics. They once also supported the president's trade war, but they are now also lobbying uh, against it. So you get a sense of just how far this has come, Alison, when minds are being changed. But they're not just lobbying the government. Uh, some of these companies out there, Alison. Some companies are now making fundamental changes to their supply chains to try and avoid these tariffs. Take a look. Aluminum handlebar, aluminum handlebar stem, aluminum suspension four. This is all from China. For Arnold Kamler, this is no longer just an eight-speed mountain bike. It's a reminder almost every part of his business is caught up in the U.S.-China trade war. Would these have all been subject to tariffs? Everything in this building. Kent International is one of the largest bicycle and bike part wholesalers in the U.S., supplying Walmart, Amazon and other major retailers. So on a million-dollar shipment, which is a normal shipment for us, where a year ago we would have paid $110,000 of import duties, this year will be $360,000 of import duties. So um, it's quite expensive to handle. So expensive that after more than three decades of manufacturing and sourcing in China, he's shifting gears. 
we don't want to move away from our main suppliers and so we're working together to build a fairly substantial factory in Cambodia. It, it's their money, it's a little bit of our, uh, our help and advice. Kent is part owned by its Chinese manufacturing partner. Last year, they purchased this plot of land in Cambodia, and when hopes of a trade deal fell apart in early May, construction plans were fast-tracked. They now hope to have the factory completed by early next year. Kent is just a small part of what experts say is one of the biggest shifts in global supply chains in years, accelerated by tariffs. For the last decade, or frankly two decades, China has been the factory of the world. Uh, And we've seen everything shift there from nails to cell phones. What's happening now is people are stepping back and saying, as labor rates are increasing and as there's uncertainty with tariffs, we need to rethink the sort of nature of the totality of our supply chain. Shoe designer Steve Madden, GoPro, even iPhone maker Foxconn are all shifting or considering shifting some production away from China to avoid the tariffs. It's a beautiful front suspension mountain bike. Arnold Kamler says the irony is before the tariffs hit, he wanted to move more production back to the U.S., expanding this assembly plant he set up in South Carolina in 2014. The tariffs on parts have made that too expensive. We believe that we have the opportunity to bring back the American bicycle industry, which was decimated by China uh, 25 and 30 years ago, and bring it all back here. But we need some help from the government. So for now, this century-old family business is heading into uncharted ground. So, Alison, I would, uh, from what we've what we found speaking to these companies, early May was certainly a turning point when we saw President Trump raise that uh, tariff rate on 200 billion worth of Chinese goods. I would argue that the next two weeks could also be a turning point. We have these hearings in Washington, followed by another week of written comments. We've also got the potential for a meeting between President Trump and President Xi uh, at the G20. So a lot could change in the next couple of weeks. But meanwhile, it's clear that these tariffs are hitting home already and are starting to lead to what could be a fundamental shift in the landscape of global trade. Yes, Claire, I absolutely agree with you. We are at a crucial time right now in the next two weeks. Claire, thanks so much for your report. And President Trump has threatened to slap more tariffs on Beijing if the Chinese president doesn't meet him at the G20 later this month. I want to discuss more now with Chris Campbell. He's the chief strategist at the consultancy Duff and Phelps. And it's fantastic to have you on because you have been working with the Trump administration over the past couple of years. Your exact title here, let me get this right, you were Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury for Financial Institutions. So you have a great point of view here. Where do you think the Trump administration is going to go with this last tranche of tariffs? Do you think they'll go ahead and slap the last bunch on? Look, this president, I think, has proven time and time again that when, when he issues a threat, he will, he will back up the threat and, and issuing and, and going through and imposing tariffs. I see nothing different now, and so I believe that you know, he will, if the Chinese don't meet him halfway or don't, don't make moves to, to get to a place where they're, where they're going to get to a, a yes in, the, in, the, in this negotiations, I think he will impose the tariffs. You know, we're talking about this week uh, kicking off these public hearings where you're hearing where, uh, you know, these companies are having a chance to sort of state their case. If you think that the Trump administration, that President Trump is going to go ahead and put these tariffs into effect, what's the point of having the public hearing if it's just sort of falling on deaf ears? Well, look, I think it's important for everyone to have a say and have a perspective. But I look, I look at this from, from a perspective of uh, the 15 years I spent in Washington, D.C. Look at the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, all of them whom I worked with to try to get China to a place of get, coming to yes on meeting us halfway to, to getting to a, free, a fair and free trade agreements. 
uh, they haven't done it. And just they've been able to, to slow walk the United States in conversation after conversation. And this administration has taken a different perspective, a different viewpoint, and, and the Chinese are, always, are reciprocating. They've, they've, you know, they're, they're at the table in a significant way. They're sending over high-level envoys. They're, they're trying to find a way to get to yes. They have domestic challenges. They see what's happening in Hong Kong and China right now and other issues. They certainly have to, their own domestic pressures they have, they have to navigate. But at the end of the day, the Chinese, the Chinese government and Chinese businesses must have access to our U.S. consumers. Without them, the Chinese markets and the Chinese economy is in real trouble. Do you see China actually coming to some sort of agreement, um, knowing that they, according to the Trump administration, backpedaled on an agreement recently? Look, I think you know, it depends on who you ask, uh, you know, who backpedaled who. But I, what, I, I, what I can say is that the Chinese government, from my perspective, and what we're advising our clients, is that they have to get to yes, because without it, they cannot see the GDP growth numbers they have to have in order to maintain the, the level of job growth that they have, that they need domestically. Um, you know, and it, without, without the level of job growth, you're going to see more of Hong Kong. If you see Hong Kong and Beijing, that's going to be a real problem for the Chinese government. Yeah, and let's get to those implications of if these tariffs go into effect. Already you're seeing retailers, as we saw in, in Claire's piece, struggling to figure out what to do with their supply chain. You know, for some companies it's a little easier, but it's really hard to bring that supply chain to America where uh, it costs more for labor and it's hard to find that production area for their needs. What is a company to do? Look, we're advising our clients to, to, to look at secondary uh, markets as for supply chains, and many of them are choosing Vietnam. You um, know, uh, if, if Congress is able to ratify the new NAFTA, I think that you know, the, uh, within our region would be fantastic. Both China and, and Mexico would, would are great, are great allies, and have so we have significant economic relationships with them. Uh, but uh, elsewhere in the world, but right now that there is a bit of this instability with China, and so prudent manufacturers should be looking at secondary supply chains. Because again, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I do know this: this administration is is serious when they come to imposing new, new threats and imposing new tariffs. I believe they'll continue. Okay, Chris Campbell, Chief Strategist at Duff and Phelps. Thanks so much for your perspective. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Okay, going public about going private. Google's CEO speaks out about data and how big tech should be using it. Today's boardroom brief, the wife of former Nissan head Carlos Ghosn has appealed to the U.S. president to help her husband. Speaking in a BBC interview, Carol Ghosn urged Donald Trump to raise the case with Japan's prime minister at the G20 summit next week. She says she has not been able to speak to her husband since early April. Shares of Lufthansa are trading more than 10% lower after it issued a profit warning. The German airline says it is facing intense price competition on shorter flights within Europe from budget airlines. The company says its longer flights continue to perform well. Chief Ethics Officer, that's how Sundar Pichai described himself in an exclusive interview. The Google CEO talked to Poppy Harlow about the thorny issue of privacy and why big tech needs to take responsibility for the way private data is used. Tim Cook recently said privacy in itself has become a crisis. Do you agree? I think it's very, very, you know, given the scale at which information is flowing, uh, I don't think users have a good sense for how their data is being used. And so I think we've put the burden on users uh, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I think we need better frameworks where users get that comfort that they, that they are in control of their data, how it's used, and they feel like they have agency over it. And so I, I think it's an important moment for all of us to do better here. That's really interesting because you say, you know, we, we as big tech have put the burden on users and we need to change that. And I'm interested in sort of how you balance that, right? As you grapple with that, how do you also balance that with the fact that so much of Google's business and what drives the profit relies on having more and more data about the user, right? Yeah. Advertisements, AI. What do you think? Most of the data we, we need is actually just to provide better services to our users. Uh, you know, the data we need for advertising is actually uh, really small. You know, when you type digital cameras into Google, you know, when we show advertisements, we know you're looking for digital cameras, and, you know, that is, you know, most of the data we need. For advertising, there is little value in holding data for long periods of time because your buying interest, uh, you know, just constantly evolve, and so, the most of the data we use is on behalf of our users to give them information back. But we want it to be their choice. Different people want different uh, ways, and so we are working hard to make it easier for users. And, and you don't think that will fundamentally harm Google's business? Uh, I've never felt, uh, you know, our business is not dependent on having lots of data on people. Uh, that, you know, it's, I think it's a misconception. You do? Yes. You recently wrote an op-ed, and you wrote... Privacy cannot be a luxury good offered only to people who can afford to buy premium products and services. Were you talking about Apple? Uh, I included even subscription services. We today, for example, we offer YouTube as a subscription service. It doesn't have ads if you choose to use it. But we don't want to save our privacy protections only for that. Uh, most people around the world will need to use some services for free. And it's important privacy works in those situations as well. And, you know, we don't use data from your emails or your photos for advertising. We, you know, we, use your, we store your photos so that we can give it back to you when you need it and that you have peace of mind around your photos. Do you think that big tech, Google, should have chief ethics officers to grapple with all of these things that we're talking about? You know, I view it's the job of the CEO to be the chief ethics officer, uh, you know, given the scale at which technology impacts society. So I, I view it as a fundamental part of my role. Uh, but I think ethics needs to come at all layers of the organizations. And, you know, uh, you know people are developing uh, work, you know, engineers and the marketers working on it. And so, you know, I'd rather write our ethical principles, hold ourselves accountable to it, and, and consult both internally and externally, to get feedback on how we make progress. Still to come, the backlash bites. UBS reportedly loses a huge contract in China as controversy rages over its chief economist's comments about swine flu. Welcome back. UBS has been dropped from advising on a large bond sale in China amid the growing fallout over comments by one of its top economists. That's according to reports. Paul Donovan's remarks about swine fever in China sparked an angry backlash in Beijing. Both he and the bank have apologized, but the controversy has mushroomed. Hadass Gold is with us with more now. Walk us through how this even transpired, Hadass. 
Yeah, Allison, you could cause this a really uh, serious case of lost in translation with some really serious consequences. So this all started actually with a podcast, a UBS podcast that was published last week. And on that podcast, their global chief economist, Paul Donovan, was talking about pork prices and how they've been causing, going up a little bit because of swine flu. And in that podcast, I want to put up the quote of what Paul Donovan said. He said Chinese consumer prices rose. This was mainly due to sick pigs. Does this matter? It matters if you are a Chinese pig. Now, according to some uh, Chinese speakers, if you look at the translation into that, then what it actually means could be perceived as something offensive. And actually, this caused an uproar on social media. The topic was trending on the Chinese version of Twitter called Weibo. Uh, two state party newspapers also blasted the comments. I'll pull up a tweet from Global Times. This is a state party-backed、uh, English language newspaper. They say UBS chief. Global economist Paul Donovan used distasteful and racist language to analyze China's inflation in a recent UBS report, sparking uproar across Chinese social media. Chinese netizens called for an official apology from UBS. Now, UBS has now officially apologized, and they've actually even placed Paul Donovan on leave. They say we apologized unreservedly for any misunderstanding caused by these innocently intended comments. We have removed the audio comment from circulation. To be clear, this comment was about inflation and Chinese consumer prices rising, which was driven by higher prices for pork. Now, some people have questioned whether this,、uh, as it was stated, an innocent remark, is being purposely sort of perceived as something more serious in China because of not only recent tensions between China and the West. But because UBS has an important foothold in China and they're trying to expand it, maybe this is something about Chinese firms trying to push back and making sure that this foreign firm doesn't get、uh, so much influence. But it goes to show you. Uh, right now, how these comments that for an English speaker might be nothing, but for a Chinese speaker might be perceived as very offensive. How in these very, very tense times, something as simple as a few words can cause what we are now seeing reported from Reuters and the Financial Times, UBS being dropped from this bond deal. Absolutely, words matter. That is the lesson here. Hadas Gold, thanks so much. Meantime, touting rather better relations with China today is the UK. China's vice premier is in London meeting the British Chancellor. His visit coincides with the long-awaited launch of a program to link the London and Shanghai stock exchanges. Our Anna Stewart is live for us in London. So the London-Shanghai Stock Connect project is four years in the making and will allow companies to list on both exchanges, right? Yeah, and it's been long awaited. There have been delays here, and I have to say, both China and the UK are hailing this as groundbreaking, at least on the government side. I would say, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, this means that companies, as you say, from each country can raise capital in each other's markets. Secondly, for the first time ever, international companies can actually list in mainland China. So you can see why this is being heralded as groundbreaking. It's great for China, which needs more capital inflows, particularly as the trade war with the US really rages on. However, Alison, there is some scepticism here, at least from people I've been speaking to in the markets in London. There's still some pretty big administrative barriers between the two markets. They're still pretty different. So, firstly, the scheme doesn't actually allow international investors to directly invest in Chinese shares, but instead in depository receipts which represent those shares. Secondly, there are trading limits in Shanghai—a 10% daily trading limit. London has none. Thirdly, to participate, if you're a Chinese company, you have to have a market cap over 2.9 billion dollars. So it's certainly not as wide and broad as it possibly looks like at first reading. 
But I would say, however you cut this, it is a great example of the UK and China working ever closer together, really cooperating at a time when China's relationships with other countries, like the United States, is really frayed at the edges. Oh, I certainly agree with you on that. Very quickly, what else do you think is going to be discussed here while the Chinese delegation is in town, Anna? This is always my favorite topic because you know what? What's most interesting is often not what's actually on the agenda, but what they talk about around the side. I think China will want to discuss Huawei. They, uh, the UK government is still deciding whether or not to allow Huawei to be involved in its 5G infrastructure. It's under pressure from the US not to allow Huawei to be part of that. Obviously, China would really like to push it otherwise. I think Brexit will be a big discuss discussion point for the UK because the UK will want to ensure a closer and closer trading relationship with China post-Brexit, but at the same time, crucially, not upsetting its relationship with the United States. So plenty to work on, not least, Alison, the fact that the government officials that China are meeting with right now might not be the government officials of the future because we are undergoing change at the top with Prime Minister Theresa May set to step down in a few weeks. Never a shortage of things to talk about. Anna Stewart, thanks so much. And that's it for the show. Thanks for watching. I'm Alison Kosick, International Desk with Christina McFarlane starts right after this short break. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.